We love supporting and promoting the creators of musical theater throughout the world. And we would love to have your support as well. Go to musicaltheaterradio.com and click on the Become a Patron button because a supportive community is a strong community. Welcome back to another episode of Be Our Guest here on Musical Theater Radio. I am your host, as always, Jean-Paul Yovanoff. We are heading to, uh, I believe, the North American West Coast today to talk to a composer who has written for a film and TV and video games and, of course, theater. I'd like to welcome to the show Michael Gordon Shapiro. Michael, welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me. All right. So we start off every interview the same. I want to know who Michael is. Who is Michael in 30 seconds? Now, is this a literal 30 seconds or are we being forgiving with the clock? Well, I, we're down to 24 now. Oh, geez. All right. I better hurry. <laughs> uh, I am a composer, lyricist, and sometimes book writer. And where musical theater is concerned, the shows I write tend to be uh, positive, witty, and usually set in some kind of speculative fiction genre, something like science fiction or fantasy or a superhero universe. So I'm, I'm basically a giant nerd, and that's, that has shaped the kind of shows that I've written. Nice. So that was even with the loss of the six seconds, you were still under 30 seconds. So I appreciate that. I recovered quickly. <laughs> yes, exactly. So um, let's take it back to, to the beginning. Were you always in a musical theater uh, as a kid, or was that something that you discovered a little bit later in life? I would say both, actually, because as a kid, my parents were usually taking me, often against my will, to see Broadway shows, because <laughs> I grew up in Long Island, and we were spitting okay. distance from New York City. So I had a lot of exposure to musical theater. And I had a few childhood favorites. I was, I was really into Jesus Christ Superstar. Uh, later, I was really into chess. So my, my taste had not really matured at that point, but my enthusiasm was there. <laughs> and uh, it was just something I was always really interested in and I was um, excited by. But I didn't really think about setting pen to paper as a show author in any way, music, book, or lyrics until quite a bit later after my, my career in doing film and game music had already been established. And I decided to uh, address this lingering passion from earlier in life. Nice. So did you always want to do uh, music as a career or was there something else that, uh, you know, popped its, its ugly head for lack of a better term? When you're <laughs> I younger. like that. Uh, I was, I was cursed with a lot of passions and some were more practical than others. So <laughs> In, in college, I was roughly a music minor, but I was actually studying artificial intelligence and cognitive <laughs> science and a lot of things that were very left brain. Mm -hmm. And it, it wasn't until the end of college where you get to that point where you realize, oh, I have to figure out what I'm doing with my life, that I confronted this, this lurking passion, this desire that had been haunting me this entire four-year stretch of college, where it said, you really want to be a composer. So I, I set about doing that. I, I pivoted into uh, grad school for music and I went to USC for film scoring and I really plunged into that world and that became my focus for basically my 20s. And that's, that, was my, that, was my first, that was my first career direction, I should say. Nice. Yeah, it makes sense because there was no future in AI and no money in there. <laughs> right. right. So, so, so you yeah, took the, the, the secure route with music. I fell back to my safety in being a film and game composer because <laughs> everyone knows being a software developer is just a dead end kind of career. With exactly. No financial oh. security at all. 
So, so you, you went to college, you got your, you, now you're, you've graduated, you're, you're writing music. What was the first thing that you wrote? Was it for the theater or were, was it more for film and game and TV first? Well, it depends how far back you want to go into my history <laughs> and what your threshold for music is. Okay. Uh, well, you know, what? As a, I, I, li I like to go deep. So let's, let's get into your soul and, and that first piece of music then. Well, when I was a kid, I would sit down at pianos, not having had any instruction and just start improvising and creating mm -hmm. and or playing tunes that I that I recognized or playing Beatles songs from ear. And a, a my origin story as a composer is that a kindly aunt discovered me just playing without having any instructions. And she threw her hands up in the air and she said, he has to have a piano. And my parents looked at each other and said, okay. And two weeks later, a piano rolled up and that got me started. So my, my earliest musical creations were really just improv, yeah. just me as a kid at the piano inventing songs or instrumental pieces, or more often than not, just randomly playing. And I think that was my, my earliest formative period. Is, are, is your family musical or, or is, are you the anomaly? I think if you go far enough back <laughs> in my family, you eventually find an opera singer or a violinist, but you have to dig through a lot of scientists and <laughs> academicians to get to that, that part of the family. <laughs> nice. So you are almost destined to do AI originally, and then you just, you're the black sheep of the academic family almost. It took a while for my parents to accept that what I was doing was actually a job and not just a hobby. But I think when I could send them to a movie theater, I say, show up at this movie theater, like the Lemley in New York City. At this time, there will be a film. It was professionally produced. It's a feature length film. There's some recognizable actors. And yes, my name is in the credits for music. So please feast your eyes on that. And that will validate me. Nice. So what was the, what was the first uh, professional paid gig that you got? Once you got out? Uh, if, well, I was doing some paid projects in college and in grad school. Um, I think I did a, I'm trying to remember. So what was the first gig right after? I'll, I'll fast forward to after USC. That, that was film music school. So we'll, we'll okay. look at that. And I won't, I won't count student films or projects like that. I did a, a feature film, which you might be able to find on IMDb called Live Long Drink Juice, which was a, an indie feature comedy out of New York City. Um, both creators went on to have fairly impressive careers in the entertainment industry or in post-production, but that was their, I think their collaborative first mm. project. And it, it was exactly what you expect. It was an indie comedy feature out of New York City and it was funny and more or less anonymous, but that was, I think my first professional gig out of any kind of college and we had a music budget and we hired some musicians and we did things as kind of a microcosm of doing it the right way. Yeah. So that was a fun project for sure. Cool. So like, like I mentioned off the top, you've done film, you've done TV, you've done video games. Um, when, when did the, the theater aspect kick in? I know you said you, you, you were taken to theater when you were younger, but when did, when did that become more prevalent? With your writing? As I worked in music for media, for film and games, uh, I found that it was extremely fulfilling on almost every level. Mm -hmm. And the, what I would like is that you're plunging into a new project and it's got its own musical requirements and vocabulary and you're problem solving and you're learning how to collaborate and you're learning how to take somebody else's story and bring it to life. But what I really wanted 
to add to my my palette of, of musical activities was something where music had storytelling primacy and where I had a certain amount of autonomy as a creator. And I was also interested in songwriting, which is very different uh, from instrumental underscore in a number of ways. Mm-hmm. So the idea of writing music for theater started creeping back into my mind as something else I could also do in parallel with, uh, with scoring work. And I, I dabbled in a couple of abortive projects in my 20s and quickly came to realize that writing a musical is hard. <laughs> and it's, it's actually deceptively hard because most people who yeah. set out to do it um, are not nearly as good at it as they think. It's because writing music is not that hard, but successfully telling a satisfying story through music, yeah. I, there's the rub, that's, that's the real trick. And uh, after fumbling around a bit, I reasoned, well, the way to get good at something that's hard is to do it a lot in microcosm, to, to iterate through the process and learn what you're doing wrong and learn where your strengths are and get better. So I, I started gently entering the choppy waters of musical theater <laughs> by writing short musicals, 10 to 15 minutes long. And I would, I would pick some genre, I would write a short musical, and either I would produce it myself in a local play festival, local 10 to 15 minute play festival, or I would find a festival somewhere in the world that would accept submissions and the, which they would then produce for you. Yeah. So one example of a festival like that is the short and sweet 10 minute play family of festivals, which originated in Sydney and is one of some, it, it exists around the world. So there's, there's branches in Hollywood, there's branches in India, they're, they're all over the place, but they are a type of festival that will accept your play and then they'll produce it for you. And some of their branches will accept musicals, not all of them, but uh, Sydney at least did at the time that I was submitting. So I, I iterated through this process. I'd write a short musical, I'd see it produced one time or, or several times, and I slowly figured out what I was doing. I slowly learned how music and story interrelate and how to write lyrics and uh, what makes audiences fall asleep and what makes audiences excited. And I, I just developed a body of, of skill and experience that helped me move towards bigger projects. Now, did you always uh, do the, be the triple threat in the creative sense of the, the book, music, and lyrics? Or did you branch out and, and reach out to somebody to take care of, say, lyrics or book? The very first short musical I wrote was a collaborative piece. I, I reasoned that I wasn't good enough at book writing yet, and I should really find someone who was a playwright. So I worked with a fellow named Mark Harvey Levine, who is a very prolific and widely produced writer of 10 minute plays. And I figure here's somebody who's good at the, at an aspect of the thing I want to do. Let's work with him. So we, we put our heads together and created a musical called the charmed life, which is a 10 minute, 10 to 12 minutes, basically a rom-com with a with the premise that a a young woman finds that her life is unnaturally fortunate she has this string of this this streak of good luck mm-hmm. everything seems to be going right for her and it manifests in that her like, chores are getting done mysteriously without her actually being involved and her parking tickets are paid so her life is just filled with this great fortune that she doesn't understand and it's starting to freak her out a little bit <laughs> And it turns out that she has had for most of her life a secret admirer 
who's been quietly following her around and doing nice things for her. And that is the source of her good fortune. So the problem she runs into is, well, what do you do with such a person who's devoted their whole life to you, but you don't know anything about them and you don't have any connection to them? So that was, that was the first musical and that was a collaborative piece. And from that point, I often, but not always worked with uh, book, music and lyrics. Uh, another exception was the first uh, non-short musical I wrote, the first uh, one act, proper one act of an hour or so in duration, was a collaboration with a fellow named Greg Crafts, who is uh, a great playwright and now a close friend. And we wrote a family-oriented musical called Super Sidekick the Musical. And you can, you can see the pattern of working in nerd fictional genres starting to <laughs> rear its head. And in that case, he had a book, an existing play, and we collaborated on musicalizing it. So I did book and, I'm sorry, I did music and lyrics there. Do you, how do you how do you feel about your lyrics? Because a lot of people, you know, they're great at one, um, and and then you know they dabble in the other or or do the other as well. Because I know personally, I, I'm much better at my lyrics than I'm than I am at my music. How how do you feel about your lyrics? I think I'm pretty good. I, I put myself in you know top twenty five percentile of of lyricists. I'm not a staggering genius, but I'm pretty good. Is it is an easy is it an easy process for you? Because um, obviously music comes pretty naturally to you. It's, it's coming up the lyrics. Is that an easy process or a hard one for you? And what comes I, first? Uh, it's a good question. I don't find that consistently music or lyrics come first for me. Mm -hmm. uh, I try to figure out what a song is about. You know, what is the one idea of this particular song? What's the message? And sometimes I'll sit down and I'll think, oh, that idea sounds like this or sometimes I'll come up with a phrase or um, a chunk of lyric and say, okay, that's, the, that's how I'm gonna express this main idea. Now, how do I treat that musically? So I, I find that both processes are, they can be easy or hard depending on how clearly I understand what I'm trying to say. <laughs> if I understand the idea of the song very clearly, if I know what the character's motivation is and how that fits in the story, the song can come very easily. And if I don't know what I'm talking about, and I'm just stumbling around and I think, all right, this should be kind of a proclamation of this character's identity, but what is it they actually want? If I'm, if I'm in the fog, then both music and lyrics are agony because I haven't figured out what I'm saying yet. <laughs> totally understandable. Yep. all been there. <laughs> so super kick, super sidekick, the musical, it was your first full length, big production. How did that go? Um, like who put it on and, and how was it received? That was a case of, good fortune descending upon Greg and myself beyond our expectations. We set about expecting to produce it ourselves. Uh, Greg happens to be co-founder of a theater production company in LA called Theater Unleashed. Mm -hmm. And so he had those resources available. So it was a pretty easy ambition to say, well, we'll get this produced somehow. But we didn't really think further than, I guess we'll bring it to a few schools. You know, that was the scope of our ambition. Yeah, But we kicked it off with uh, Theodore Unleashed produced it at the, I'm trying to think, this festival keeps changing names. <laughs> at the time was called the LA Festival of New American Musicals, New American Musicals. Let me give you another take of that. At the time, it was called the LA Festival of New American Musicals. And forgive me, I think they're just FNAM these days, but uh, that was our first production. We were under the umbrella of a festival, so we had a little bit of publicity. 
that went pretty well. So we took it to the Hollywood Fringe for two successive years. I think wow. that was 2000, 2010-ish, but it might've been a year or two before that. And um, that might have been the end of it. But I'd had two short musicals accepted into the Samuel, I'm sorry, the, uh, yeah, the Samuel French Off-Off Broadway Play Festival. And uh, that was another festival for short plays that accepted musicals. And that one was a, you come out here and produce it kind of festival. Yeah. So I, I came out to New York, where I'm from, it wasn't a big deal. And uh, I didn't win either of the years I was involved, but I was having a chit chat with the head of uh, Samuel French uh, literary. And they said, you know, what are you working on? And I said, well, we just finished uh, a family friendly musical. And uh, there was some interest there. So at their invitation, we submitted it to Samuel French. And then nothing happened for like a year or two. And we kind of gave up. We figured, okay, yeah. that, that's, that's kind of a polite no. But um, I was in the middle of a convention when this email came in saying, hey, we'd love to publish your musical. So I immediately texted Greg in all caps, like, check your email right now. <laughs> so that was uh, tremendously exciting. So they, they did end up picking up for publication. And Super Sidekick has had um, a number of productions that we had nothing to do with, which is the ultimate uh, yeah. privilege as a writer. Like, that's the dream, right? You want somebody else to run with your show and you not have to book theaters and beg people to show up. You, know, you just want the show to have a, a life of its own. So that's, that's what happened. The show has now ha had a number of performances, usually in the middle of a country um, at some local theater that's like bigger than all the East and West Coast theaters that we've yeah. produced and put together, like these enormous venues. And it's been a real delight seeing uh, companies that are either comprised of young people or they, they typically perform for younger audiences take this show and reimagine it and come up with their own costumes, their own posters. That's been a real delight. Wow. Congratulations on that. Um, you know, that is the ultimate goal of every creator of a musical is to, to get it picked up like that and produced everywhere. So congratulations on that. Well, thank you. We were, we were pretty psyched because it was so beyond what our ambitions were for that piece. Yeah. So, and, and now like any artist, you have the success and now you got to start again, <laughs> right? That's, that's, exactly. the, that's the problem with art, right? You build it, you, you succeed, and now you have to start again from the beginning. What did you go to on to next? Well, there were a couple of tracks. Uh, I still felt like I had a lot to learn about lyrical technique. I thought I was gifted in terms of knowing how to use language, but aspects of rhyming and prosody and the, the really technical stuff in, in musical theater, lyric writing, were beyond me. When, when, I wrote music, when I wrote Super Sidekick, the music and lyrics, I literally did not know the definition of a rhyme. And you'll often find that it shows in some of the lyrics <laughs> I wrote for that show, which are much less technically sophisticated than what I would do today. Yeah. Uh, you, can, you can hear it. It's witty, but it's, you're not always hearing perfect rhymes, and you're not always hearing accents fall in the right place. Mm -hmm. So I decided I needed myself some more education, and I discovered an organization which is now known as New Musicals, Inc., Yes. which is both a educational organization as well as a uh, production company, a de facto production company. And I went through their core curriculum and learned what I needed to know about the technical aspects of lyric writing that had really been uh, eluding me or just I'd never been exposed to that 
that body of knowledge before. Mm-hmm. And along the way, I learned a lot about uh, just through dint of exposure, I learned a lot more about book writing than I anticipated and how musical structure can help tell stories. And just, it, it really rounded out my, my musical theater education. And it became significant because that organization uh, years later would end up co-producing some of my later shows. So that was a very fortuitous turn of events and, and a good choice on my part. For sure, for sure. That, that uh, program, um, we actually play a, a few of the shows that came out of that program. Um, on the station. I also interviewed, oh man, I'm trying to remember who it was. Uh, she's in charge of uh, Elise. Um, oh, Elise Dewsbury, yes. Yeah, so I interviewed her already for the podcast. So yeah, I, I'm really, I, I know this company very well at NMI. And so congratulations on that too, because, you know, they don't take everybody, they, you know, you got to have some kind of talent to uh, get into that. Yeah, Elise in particular has been, was my, uh, essentially my mentor for a few Mm. years after I left the core program and she has been the producer of the larger projects I've done since. So it was a really interesting situation where what started out as a strictly educational relationship Mm -hmm. evolved into more of a commercial collaborative relationship. Nice. Yeah. You never know where talking to someone, meeting someone is going to take you. Like when you went to New York and you met that the same French person, you know, it, it took a year and a bit, but you know, you talk to everybody, you never know what's going to happen. That is a major piece of the advice that I would give anyone involving themselves in musical theater. And that is just to fling yourself into the universe of people <laughs> and collaborators and media representatives and just everyone who's involved in this world and be nice and take interest in people and make friends and make connections and throw yourself into the brownie motion of all these molecules bouncing into each other in unpredictable ways because you just cannot anticipate how one connection might years later redound upon your career. Oh, for sure. This, this musical theater community is huge, but so small. Like everybody seems to know everybody from, from what I'm learning when I, when I talk to people. So. Right, yes, that's a great way to characterize it. After Super Sidekick, uh, you went on to some other stuff. Uh, tell me a little bit about the bully problem, because that's how I met you. Uh, I don't know. I discovered this show about a year and a half ago, I think, and then I sent you a communication to learn more about it. And uh, yeah, tell us a little bit about the bully problem. So the bully problem was the next step in my slow, gradual self-education in what am I what am I doing in musical theater writing. Mm-hmm. So if you see um, an evolution from the early 10-minute musicals that I did to Super Sidekick, which was a collaborative one-hour show, I reasoned that I was about at the part where I should try writing a proper full-length, hour-and-a-half, single-author show. So then there were two failed projects that I won't talk about. And then, (laughs) no, I I worked on a couple of shows where uh, I will file them away as learning experiences. Yeah. And one had a workshop and the other one kind of uh, died at the the book writing phase. Those were very important educational experiences, but I don't have a ton to show for them yet. So having learned a lot, I I went through my mental list of story ideas and I thought, you know, I kind of wanted to do a story about a kid, a musical about a kid with a robot bodyguard. That's that's what was on my list of items for a long time. And again, you can see the, the sci-fi orientation of where my instincts tend to go. Yeah. So I developed this 
with Elise Dewsbury, with the aforementioned uh, dramaturg at NMI for a couple of years. Um, I think I started early 2016 and we, it went through a number of iterations and uh, as is the style of collaborations at NMI, I started with the book before I wrote a lick of music. We just wanted to make sure the story was in decent shape. We, uh, we did a private-ish reading, like a staged reading in front of about 50 people. And what happened after that, which was really cool, was that I submitted it to the uh, ASCAP Stephen Schwartz Musical Theater Workshop. Yes. Which the, the affiliation, I think, changes names, but I think ASCAP is always involved and Stephen Schwartz is always involved. And that was one of two accepted shows for the 2000, I believe, 18 uh, Los Angeles iteration of that particular workshop. So I got to take about 45, 50 minutes of the show and present it to Stephen Schwartz and two other industry panelists and a thousand or whatever it was of my best friends. Uh, <laughs> they did it at the, at, I forget the name of the theater, but it's in Beverly Hills and it's, it's fairly capacious. So there were definitely hundreds of people in the audience. And uh, I got to present an excerpt of that and got really useful feedback as a result of that process. So that was the second iteration of the show, if you think of our, our, our stage reading as the first one. So um, if, if you've ever been to one of these workshops, you know that Stephen and friends are not shy about <laughs> giving very strong feedback. And I was indeed the recipient of a, a lot of uh, strong suggestions uh, about how the story needed to be improved. Yeah. And after a few weeks of, of shame and discouragement evaporated, I looked objectively at the notes I'd been given and I thought, yeah, they're right. My main yeah. character isn't likable at all. Or we're getting really distracted from the main character's mission about midway through act one. I really need to fix that. So that was uh, profoundly useful, uh, mm -hmm. as emotionally difficult as it was at the time. Uh, at that point, NMI came to me and said, hey, Mike, we are thinking of producing some musicals, full-length musicals in the Hollywood Fringe Festival in 2019. Uh, here we are in the summer of 2018. What have you got? Yeah. And I pitched three different shows, one of which was The Bully Problem. And I said, I, I am confident I can get this down to the one and a half hour length that would make sense, uh, which is kind of the outer limits of the, of the duration of an acceptable Fringe show. Yeah. And at that time, the bully problem was, I think, two and a half hours. So my saying <laughs> wow. this, it involved a lot of confidence in myself that I, I'm not sure that I deserved. But <laughs> of the three shows uh, that I pitched, they said, let's do the bully problem. We developed it here. We know it. We see some potential yeah. in it. And I set about with a machete, just chopping it down and making it a much tighter and frankly, much better show. Yeah. And that is the version that a year later we took to the Hollywood yeah. French. And how, how did that one get received? It really went well. Um, Good. I don't, all of my disasters happen off stage. Like <laughs> my, my crises are always things that happen in, in workshops or at the writing stage. And that's when I have my miserable failures. And I think if you're going to fail, that's the place to do it. Oh, yeah, for but, sure. <laughs> but this went really well. We, uh, I was very aggressive in marketing. I did the whole fringe thing. I went to every single get together. I went to bars and handed out postcards for my show. I, I did the song and dance you need to do when you're dealing with an audience that primarily consists of people who are also presenting at the Hollywood fringe. It's <laughs> yeah. a very, it's a very tight knit community. 
And we sold out every performance. We got predominantly very positive reviews. You always get one or two grumpy people. But if you look at the, the fringe page for the show, it's just glowing review after glowing review. Yeah. And the local press loved us. And we were nominated for, I think we were the most nominated show for the, the Fringe Awards that year. Wow. Very cool. Yeah, I, 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 I treat reviews like figure skating judges. You take the top score, you take the bottom score, and you drop them. Because right. they're both, and then whatever's in the middle is probably the, the, the truth. <laughs> so. right. you, you don't quote your friends and family members. <laughs> exactly. And you don't quote the people who are showing up with an ax to grind and hate everything you do no matter what. And yeah, there's that big chunk in the middle, that the, the two standard deviations on either yep. side of the mean. Yeah. Awesome. So let's talk about your, your latest show um, that um, we're going to be promoting and helping to, um, you know, get more people to see. So it's Gideon and the Blunder Snorp. Exactly. So tell us a little bit more about Gideon and what exactly is a Blunder Snorp? Well, note that you can tell by the title that this is a pretty serious, hard-hitting drama. <laughs> yeah, I've got, I've got the Kleenex box right beside me when I'm watching it. Good. I, I really think the title of a show is your first opportunity to make a first impression and really let people know what it's about. So if your show is something really abstract or generic, if it's, you know, visions of love or whatever, <laughs> you're not taking advantage of that opportunity to suggest a style and a, a tone of voice and give people an idea what it's about. So uh, Gideon and the Blunder Snorp is a fantasy, a medieval-ish fantasy adventure musical. Uh, I wanted to take the spirit of what we would call YA fantasy literature uh, mm -hmm. that's targeted, it, that's meant to be both compatible with younger audience members as well as adults, and transport that, that spirit and that tradition to musical theater. So it's a one-hour show. It's, like I said to my self-summary, it's meant to be witty and positive, but also address both young audience members and adults at the same time. Uh, it um, has a kind of quasi-medieval folk-ish musical styling where there are lutes and there are other period instruments that evoke uh, antiquity, but it's not set in any particular literal period. It really is a, a fantasy universe, um, like Prydain or Narnia or one of those imagined worlds. Uh, Plot-wise, it's about a young stable hand whose big dream is to become a knight. And in this particular world, the knights are called the Royal Cavaliers. So that's, that's Gideon's I want. He wants to become one of the Royal Cavaliers. Mm -hmm. And the world he's in has a very strict kind of social order, much like actual medieval society. So that if you're, you're born a stable hand, you're not likely to rise above that station, or at least that's the prevailing wisdom. So everyone in that world is told that where they are is where they're gonna be, and they might as well to it. So the theme of the show is that your moral character, the choices you make, are actually more important and determine your destiny more than your social class. So the show is trying to subvert the idea of, of class predestination without ever using words that fancy or complicated. <laughs> uh, Plot-wise, so Gideon wants to be a knight. He gets wind of the fact that there's this terrible monster roaming the countryside, which is called, guess what, a blundersnorp. Uh, so there's this evil monster out there and Gideon is interrogating one of the Royal Cavaliers. He stumbles upon one at the, the stable where he works and he's asking him all kinds of questions. How do I get to be a knight, et cetera, et cetera. The 
Cavalier, who is not, in fact, the most brave fellow in the universe, hears about these, this monster in the forest, and he hears that the king has told all the cavaliers to race forth and do battle with the terrible creature and destroy it. And since he's not very brave, he immediately gets in his horse and rides in the opposite direction in a panic. Now, in doing so, he accidentally leaves his pack and sword behind on the ground because his only desire is to get out of dodge. And Gideon stumbles upon the sword and the pack that's discarded and says, oh, no, Gideon's rather naive. And uh, he uh, has a little bit of an overinflated idea of the moral character of these knights. So he figures that this cavalier went off to face the monster and accidentally left his sword behind. So Gideon decides, well, he's in big trouble unless somebody brings the sword to him. So Gideon grabs the sword and races off. He thinks he's chasing down this careless cavalier who's gone off to fight the monster, when in fact he's actually racing headlong into danger himself. And you can probably piece together that this involves mm -hmm. a... Uh, encounter between Gideon himself and the monster yes. later on. Nice. Uh, so the only other point of the story that's of, uh, I guess, interest at the synopsis level is that uh, along the way, he's kidnapped by bandits and he teams up with a young noblewoman named Alana. And Alana's deal is that she is also buying into this idea of social predestination because she's a member of the nobility and she thinks she's better than everybody else and that her future is to be part of the aristocracy and hopefully royalty one day. And the two of them put their heads together and during the course of the show, they slowly come to the conclusion that the social destiny that they've all been told to expect is not necessarily what they have to do. Uh, Gideon doesn't have to necessarily be a stable hand just because he was born that way. And Alana realizes that maybe she's not that happy being a member of, of royalty. And maybe there's another life awaiting for her where she would have more autonomy and choice in what she does. So that's my attempt to smuggle in a good message in a, an entertaining and plot-driven musical. Nice. And now this show um, is available to watch online, isn't it? Uh, it is. Uh, our, our original plan was to be a kind of follow-up to the bully problem. We thought mm -hmm. bully problem went well at the Hollywood Fringe. Let's do that again. So we had planned to stage at the now-canceled 2020 Hollywood Fringe. And that, of course, was a victim like so many other theater events of yes. the pandemic. And as we saw the writing on the wall, we, the, Elise and I put our heads together and we said, well, what, what possible futures are there right now? And what could we do if there's no fringe this year? And we came upon the idea of doing a, a video version of the show using Zoom as our medium, where mm -hmm. the actors would all be recording from home and singing from home, and they would literally teleconference, in, teleconference into a Zoom meeting, and we would record the show or kind of approximation of the show, a strange, socially isolated approximation <laughs> of the show, yeah. where no one can actually see one another except through Zoom windows and figure out what it would mean to try to create a musical in this very odd, simultaneously high-tech and low-tech kind of medium that has mm -hmm. swept the world since the, the hiatus of musical theater. So as a result, we put together what is now the first incarnation of, of this musical, which is an online created in Zoom uh, quasi movie. I mean, it's essentially a super low budget movie musical instead of a stage musical. 
And that has become the way that the show entered the world. Very cool. Yeah. So we're going to be promoting it on our social media pages. And by the time this airs, it'll, it'll be out there. Um, what's the website that you can find this at? If you go to gideonmusical.com, you will find both general information about the show and the usual things you'd expect, like backgrounds and some music samples. And you'll also find a link to the online version of the show. Now, we, are, we did an initial release of the show last month, and mm -hmm. we, that was a one-time event, and we had a, a chat with our, with our cast. And we are now doing a on-demand release, meaning you don't have to show up at a particular time or place. You just go to nice. the website, and that will be available starting Thanksgiving which this year I think is the 26th. Don't quote me on that, but I'm in Canada. I have it passed already for me. <laughs> so <laughs> I should, let me clarify and um, be a little more international. It, there we go. It'll be launched on American Thanksgiving. Okay. Which is, and November, that is yeah, November Thursday, 17th. the 26th. Okay. So if you go to gideonmusical.com right now, it'll just say coming soon on the 26th, but starting that date, you will be able to go and watch the show on that site and see what we did in terms of putting together this very odd, but ultimately rather cool quasi-movie musical. Yeah, and congratulations on, on you know, figuring something out. This, this whole pandemic has thrown our industry for a loop, and, and we've all had to, you know, we all had our moments at the beginning, you know, where, you know, we're depressed, we're trying to figure it out, but then we've figured out how to pivot and, and figure out ways to keep the industry alive and going until we can go back to, you know, live theater. So congratulations on putting this together and getting that out there. I had a tremendous amount of support, both from NMI, which had a certain amount of experience in doing online shows even before the pandemic. So I was fortunate in that they had a a technical expertise in producing this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, they weren't thrown by any of the technical demands, which are actually quite, uh, can be quite involved depending how you do these. Yeah. I also had an amazing editor, uh, a fellow named Travis Dixon, who um, being also an actor and filmmaker, he has a really good intuition and, can, and was able to take this collection of individual performances, you know, these everyone's in their own window kind yeah. of strange, opening to the Brady Bunch, Hollywood Squares kind of <laughs> grid of actors uh, yeah. who are all facing straightforward most of the time. And he, he edited it into something that really feels cinematic, if not in terms of cinematography, but in terms of pacing and uh, selective focus and knowing when to bring some actors in and to move some others off screen. It's, yeah. quite, a, it's quite extraordinary what he was able to accomplish. So, at, so the short answer to what you said is thank you. That's the, that's the civilized answer. And the slightly longer and more pompous one is I was the beneficiary of some very talented collaborators. Yeah, we got we to gotta all help each other and support each other during this time. Well, even during normal times, but especially during this time, work with each other and uh, build this. Um, Michael, thank you so much for uh, coming on and talk, talking to us about your, your life and, and, and musical theater and your shows and everything like that. Thank you so much for coming on. Oh, it's, it's been a real pleasure. And uh, I think everyone in the musical theater community and actually the, the theater community at large owe an emotional debt to podcasters such as yourself who are keeping the discussion going during mm -hmm. this period where we really need to continue to believe in theater and musical theater. And just having somewhere to discuss it and 
being able to listen to podcasts about musical theater. Um, don't sell short the emotional value you are providing to a lot of people right now. Well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I'm doing my little part from my little second bedroom in Toronto here, um, doing whatever I can to keep this all alive. So, But before we go, I always ask three questions of all of my guests. Now, there's no right or wrong answer to these questions, but there's going to be one wrong answer. Maybe. <laughs> we'll see. We'll, we'll, we'll see what your answer is. All right. So question number one. Who is your favorite creator or team when it comes to either music, lyrics, or book in the musical theater world? Now, that could be your favorite. It could be just one that you, you know, have a lot of passion for or anything like that. Is there, is there a creative team or person for music, lyrics, or book? Sure. Um, I think it's safe to say that my favorite lyricist is Stephen Sondheim. Mm -hmm. And I say that as someone who doesn't actually enjoy the majority of his shows. Um, <laughs> There's a few I like and a lot that just don't reach me because they're a little too cynical. Mm -hmm. But as a lyricist, almost without respect to whatever he happens to be writing about, he is so skilled. He has such a good intuition about the rhythm of the English language. And he is so good at giving you lyrics that are logical but unexpected, yeah. um, which is really what a good story should be, that I just take pleasure in anything he's written, even if I don't like the show. He's just that good. And he's a real inspiration in terms of lyrical technique. That is one correct answer. Congratulations. One point. All right. Made the All cut right. for the first one. What else have you <laughs> no. got? Now, number two, um, I usually don't go this in depth, and, and, and this might be a bit emotional for you. I, I don't know your state of mind and things like that. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask this question anyways. What is your favorite key signature to write in? Oh, C major. So easy. So friendly. <laughs> I know that pianists tend to like key signatures with a lot of black keys because it yeah. tends to fit the fingers better and you can navigate more easily. But mm -hmm. I just go for the simplest key possible. And then if I feel exotic, I'll start to move it yeah. or I'll transpose it and see what happens, the side effect of moving my fingers. Not, hey, nothing wrong with that. C major is the vanilla of the key signatures, but you know what? There ain't nothing wrong with vanilla. It's still yummy. So. I'm, I'm a big fan of vanilla, both in key signatures and literal ice cream. Nice. Nice. Another correct answer. <laughs> Congratulations. I'm doing okay. Right. Question number three. This is, the, this is the one that might trip you up. Audience members eating food in the theater, yes or no? I would say that if they can eat food quietly, mm -hmm. and honestly, anything that stops them from using their phones... Uh, a huge plus as far as I'm concerned. So yeah, you know, try not to have a plastic bag of Doritos where the people in the back row can tell that you're opening the bag. But if you've got something discreet and quiet, um, then, you know, that's between you and whoever has to clean the upholstery on the seats later. <laughs> All right. I will I'll give you at least a half point for that. I'm not a fan of it because they leave garbage everywhere. That's the bigger problem I find than even the noise. Um, but I will, the phone thing for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Where, where phones are concerned. I, I, all right. If I have a theater of my own one day, there's mm -hmm. going to be, there's going to be two box seats that will never be for sale. Yeah. And the reason they will not be for sale is because I will have snipers sitting in those seats. <laughs> On one, one on each side of the theater, looking for the glow of a screen. If they see it, they have my full authority to murder that person. And by the way, with silencers am, on the guns, of course. I'm putting all my shows in your theater, for sure. 
Well, thank sure. you. That's a good sign. That we're going right. to proudly advertise that. You know what? I'm going to discard the, the food question. I gave you half point. I'm giving you a full, you know, two points for the um, sniper question. The sniper answer. Excellent. So, I've redeemed myself at the last minute. Yeah. Congratulations on uh, the passing all three questions. <laughs> so, uh, Michael, again, thank you so much for coming on and talking to me about the show and uh, all that you are doing in the musical theater community. This is a real pleasure. So thank you. No problem. All right. So we were just speaking with Michael Gordon uh, Shapiro here on Be Our Guest on Musical Theater Radio. Tune in next week as we'll be talking with another guest or guests about their life, love, and passion. That is musical theater. I am your host, as always, Jean-Paul Yovanoff. And until next time, I'll see you when I see you. We love supporting and promoting the creators of musical theater throughout the world. And we would love to have your support as well. Go to musicaltheaterradio.com and click on the Become a Patron button because a supportive community is a strong community.